Welcome to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. It's great to have you with us today. We just love our guest, Casley Killam. She is based in San Francisco, California. She, you know, is a blogger. She she writes. She's an expert in social health and well-being, uh, especially she loves to talk about you know, well loneliness and and finding connection and community and we just found her delightful uh, there's so many things that we have in common with her our our love of the dalai lama uh, vancouver where she w- was born and and grew up uh, we spent some time there and just fell in love with that city uh, victor frankel a holocaust survivor who writes about overcoming suffering and just so many other kinds of things that you'll hear about today that we we share with her. And we're just so, so proud of this episode and, and grateful that uh, Casley was able to join us. Now, we, we, we do need to say that, you know, now we've been starting doing our episodes on Zoom. They're both not, they're both audio and video. So you can see the person, you can see us and see the person who's being interviewed. But this one is simply audio today. And there's a, there's a funny reason. Because of, of, of sound issues and... Uh, and COVID and, and needing to have some space away from other people in order to do the interview that was quiet. The only place that Casley was able to do the interview was in her bathroom, in her apartment. And she just didn't want that to be on video of her sitting in the bathroom <laughs> as she was talking with us. And we kind of found that to be funny. And uh, so the interview today, you'll just hear her, but you can imagine where, where, you know, where, where she had to do it. Um, and so we, uh, you know, we just thought we'd share that with you to explain why it's a little bit different. And then we also want to celebrate, we have a new sponsor to the Someone to Tell the Two podcast, the Jessica Drew Memorial Sunshine Fund that is based in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And it is in memory of Jessica Drew, who, who passed away at age 21 in a car accident. And her mother and, and her father and her sisters wanted to honor her, memorialize her, and remember her in a very special way. And we are recipients of, of this fund, and we are so grateful that uh, the Drew family is supporting someone to tell it to in its podcasts, and we welcome them as our special sponsors today. If you would like to sponsor us in any way to donate to help make these podcasts be available, please go to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. And we will appreciate it so very much. So, we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Casley. Well, hi, Casley. So good to have you on the program with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, we're not going to let you off the hook here. You have to tell our listeners where you're, you're doing this interview from. Yes, I am in San Francisco currently. I spent the first few months of the pandemic uh, in Arizona, kind of by accident. I went there to visit some family for a few days and then the country shut down and I just ended up staying a few months. Um, but now I'm, I'm safely back in California, uh, sheltering in place. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful foggy day here. 
<laughs> but I, but I also wanted you to add where where are you actually doing the interview right now? Oh, where am I actually? I am in my bathroom right yes, now. Yes, you are. <laughs> we had some uh, sound issues out in the other space. I'm uh, sadly in a small San Francisco apartment. So yeah, glorious bathroom. <laughs> Tuning in. Thanks for being vulnerable about that. that was yeah. Right before Michael press record here, our, the the yeah. train is going by in my at my house. So <laughs> we're all we're all uh, making adjustments here as we go. Yeah, everyone's in the same boat. I know lots of people do them from closets and things like that. So here we are. Well, again, it's just so good to have you with us. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, it's just so good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Um, so one of the things that as we were spending some time getting to know you and a little bit more about your story, we found fascinating and we'd love for you just to start off today's uh, conversation telling us a little bit about your interaction with the Dalai Lama because from mm -hmm. what we had read that you had a chance to meet him, if that's correct. And I did. Yeah. Amazing. And so what was that like? We, we recently <laughs> with, with some of our, our team members read a book called the book of joy, if you've mm -hmm. ever heard of it. Mm -hmm. And we just loved learning more about the Dalai Lama, his life and his values. And so uh, yeah, anything that, that, that you took away from that interaction, we just love to hear, hear more. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's such a, such a funny experience to reflect on. I first learned about the Dalai Lama in Buddhism. Um, I think I was in grade eight. It was in social studies class. Mr. Connors was teaching us about, you know, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And I was so interested in it. And, and in a certain sense, it kind of just resonated with me. And, and, um, and so I, I took on an interest in Buddhism thereafter and studied it in various capacities. I ended up uh, spending some time in Nepal in, in a Buddhist monastery. But this experience came about because I actually did this competition at Stanford University. It was called the Compassion and Technology Competition. This was probably 10 years ago. And as part of that, I, I was one of three uh, winners or kind of award recipients coming out of that. And part of the award was the opportunity to actually meet the Dalai Lama. I guess the, the department within Stanford that was running this competition had close ties with him, had a relationship with him. And so when he came to visit um, on his kind of California tour back in, I think it was 2013, um, I had the honor of being able to fly down there and actually meet him. And it was, it was very brief, you know, it's not like we had a long conversation, yeah, right. but what was memorable is that he sneezed on me, right? When he got to me and was no about way. to kind of say hello. Yeah. He sneezed on me, which I've never been able to figure out if that's a karmic blessing or a karmic curse or what that means. <laughs> but, um, it was just, it was such a neat interaction and, um, such an honor to meet someone like that who's influenced so many people's lives um and yeah just kind of a, a very surreal experience to reflect on it it, it was really meaningful <laughs> did you ever want to wash your hands afterwards <laughs> yeah well well that's the thing do you wash them or you not is it a, yeah. is it a blessing is it i don't know <laughs> i would now during covid i definitely would <laughs> well michael's talked about previously he's met some famous people along the way and, and he's jokingly said afterwards he didn't want to wash his hands yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh one of the questions is in, in re relation to the dalai lama is what is it about the buddhist monks and their practices that bring them the, this peace this calm and this tra tranquility mm. well um that's a really good question i mean 
I, you know, I haven't studied it as in depth as, as many other scholars, but I will say from my own experience, um, I, I, like I mentioned, I spent a month in this Buddhist monastery in Nepal years ago. And, um, for me, I think a lot of it was the frame of mind around acceptance and the way of thinking about suffering and, and how love of ebbs and flows and, and the acceptance of that and the willingness to engage through the lens of empathy and compassion um, and also just the practice of meditation in itself. I think we all you know, anyone who's tried it has experienced that it's very challenging, but also um, the peace and serenity that comes from that practice, from just checking in and focusing on your breathing, being mindful, you know, practicing loving kindness, those kinds of things, they do just, um, they change your perspective. And I think for me personally, I can't speak to all Buddhist monks, but for me personally, in in a small way, um, that was a very transformative way of looking at the world and also way of relating to myself and, and my kind of human existence. Um, so yeah, I, I think it has to do with, with the perspective, the, the way of relating to our, our experiences, both positive and negative, the way of relating to other people. Um, I think that kind of inherently can, can bring some calm. At the same time, you know, it's, it's very different to be applying those practices when you're meditating in the Himalayas and, you know, applying them in that context versus when you're quarantined in your home. home. (laughs) Yes. In your bathroom or you're, you know, you're, you're going about your life and you're paying taxes and your kids are sick and your parents pass away. And, you know, there's just, there's really getting into the nitty gritty of the day to day and applying those principles in that context, I think is where, there's huge challenge, but also huge uh, opportunity to bring some of those principles and help you weather uh, those various experiences. Well, we are very uh, impressed with uh, the fact that you got to meet the Dalai Lama. We respect, <laughs> we respect him highly mm-hmm. and have read this book uh, uh, about him and Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu's interaction mm-hmm. with one another, the Book of Joy. We've read it twice now. <laughs> And we uh, figure that we will we'll be reading it again. Uh, there yes. are so many rich moments and, and experiences and thoughts that both men uh, were able to share during that time they spent together and that was mm-hmm. then written about. And yeah. um, so uh, to, to have um, met, um, met the Dalai Lama is, is, is pretty neat. And uh, we're so great that, so grateful uh, <laughs> to know that uh, we, we know someone now who has met him. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I really, something I really respect about the Dalai Lama is that he engages in these conversations with people of different faiths. He engages a lot with scientists and actually um, to answer your earlier question too, I mean, researchers have now studied meditation for decades and, you know, neuroscientists have hooked Buddhist monks up to fMRI machines. And so you can actually measure these effects of, of calmness and lower heart rate and things like that, that can come from meditation. And so, you know, to your point, I love that he engages with someone like Desmond Tutu and, and scientists and, and people of all walks of life to really kind of explore these things intellectually, scientifically, spiritually. I think it's really inspiring. We love that too, and mm-hmm. uh, and um, also a, a bit envious of those who uh, 
are able to meditate in such ways that that, that, that literally does change your yeah. physical being as well as your emotional and mental and spiritual being too. And, mm-hmm. and um, you can yearn for that. Uh, yeah. On, on tough days, you know. <laughs> well, um, we uh, in 2019, just uh, last year, we had the absolute pleasure of speaking at the uh, International Listening Association convention in the city where you were born, Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, we just want to say what a beautiful city. It's so yes. diverse and <laughs> modern, magnificent, absolutely magnificent scenery surrounding it. And we really absolutely loved it there. So tell us mm-hmm. what it was like growing up there. And and then are you, would, you, would you relate it to how that has impacted you and influenced you? Mm-hmm. To be doing what you're doing today, were there were there was something about living there, growing up there that, um, you know, how has that impacted your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I also love Vancouver. I think um, you know it's it's such a spectacular city, just visually, aesthetically, the mountains, the ocean. It's stunning. There's also a lot that I appreciate now about it that I you know took for granted as a child. Things like access to quality education in elementary school and high school through just the public school system, more affordable, higher education, just the cleanliness and kind of security that I felt growing up in that city. Um, It's just, I feel very, very very lucky and grateful uh, to have had my childhood there. It definitely has influenced me um, in a variety of ways. I mean, I think, you know, growing up there as a child and as an adolescent, is very different than if I had moved there as an adult or you know, if I were to retire there someday. Um, I think for me, you know, when you're growing up, when you're a youth, you kind of have this circle of people around you that you really have no say in. You know, you have your peers at school um, and maybe through some hobbies or extracurriculars and that's kind of it. There isn't this sense of the whole world being open to you. And so I think that you know, although I had great friendships growing up and, and you know, had, had a healthy social life, I think that there was a sense in me that um, it wasn't necessarily my tribe or I, I wasn't able to kind of find the communities there, at least in my youth, that, um, that really resonated on a deeper level. And it actually wasn't until moving away and moving multiple times to different cities and different countries that I really found people who I connected on such a deeper level with. And so uh, in some ways, Vancouver influenced me in that it it served as kind of this um, benchmark or contrast for the communities and relationships that I would go on to develop elsewhere. Um, And I think, you know, I I went on to, I think I've lived in nine cities now in three different countries. And um, each time I had to start fresh and build new communities and my new friendships. And um, it also meant observing the ways that different cultures and different um, societies engage with one another and how they prioritize or value relationships. Um, And that was really interesting to me. It also meant that, um, you know, sometimes that came very naturally and I really 
you know, certainly in San Francisco, I felt like I found my people right away and just instantly loved it. But other places, it was harder. And I, I didn't feel those same strong sense of social connections. And um, I mean, it, that contrast to me was really fascinating because I could feel pretty much instantly the toll on my ability to thrive as a person, whether mentally, emotionally, physically, kind of just it affected all areas of my life, depending on, on whether or not I had those really strong connections. So Vancouver was kind of the, the foundation where I started examining these themes and, and thinking about my relation to myself and to other people and the kinds of um, communities that I wanted to be part of. Um, and that led me on a long path of exploring that theme through many different lenses. Just as a sidelight to our experience in Vancouver, one of the, the most profound experiences for us from that trip mm-hmm. was besides speaking at the conference and just interacting with a variety of people from around the world at this conference, we got to spend time with a, who has become a dear friend of ours and supporter of someone to tell to his mission, a man who lives in Vancouver and he, Michael, forgive me if I can't remember which country he's initially from. Iran. Iran. And so he, he actually took us out to uh, a meal and had like the whole, the whole nine, uh, you know, that he, he grew up in. Um, and it, it was just this incredible feast that we enjoyed, you know, in, in his native language. And uh, that, that experience was one that we will hold with us for forever. Uh, yeah. That, that really kind of, it was a reminder that even though we are far apart, in a lot of ways, we, we are, are so closely connected. And that's yeah. a big part of why we have you on the program today. Is to talk about <laughs> that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, that was, that's a huge strength of Canada as a country in general, that there are people from so many different walks of life. And that contributes to the kinds of friends you have, the kind of empathy you build for people of all different backgrounds, countries, and so on, religions, you know, races. But also, uh, it plays into things like the kind of food you can eat. You know, I mean, there's um, incredible cuisine from all around the world, um, right, accessible there. So, yeah, that that was a really rich part of growing up there, and also going to going to college there, getting to know people from many different countries and, and many different walks of life. And he spoke Farsi throughout the meal mm-hmm. to the waiters and waitresses, and then <laughs> you know he just he he was so excited to share this experience with us that he just ordered everything. And that's the way to do it (laughs) it was it was delicious it was one of the finest meals we've had yeah (laughs) but i mean actually tying it back to this book that we were referenced earlier the book of joy one of the things that we most appreciated in the book was the fact that the dalai lama and bishop desmond tutu took time to engage each other in their own traditions and to share Mm -hmm. a lot of meals together which mm-hmm. I think there's something satisfying. We often say in our training work that there's something satisfying about sharing meals together. It's like this mm-hmm. commonality that we all have, that we have this need to eat. Uh, but <laughs> I think this is a nice segue into what we actually really wanted to talk to you uh, today <laughs> about. And you've recently written an article about it, and it's this topic of isolation and loneliness. And mm-hmm. I think the, the first line actually really grabbed my attention where you said hunger is your body's way of telling you that you need food. Similarly, loneliness is your body's way of telling you that you need connection. Mm -hmm. I really loved that. 
<laughs> so we we're right obviously right now in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, what are you finding, and what are you concerned about, and and what gives you hope uh, heading into the future? You know, in, in mm -hmm. terms of how we address this this issue of, of loneliness and disconnection. Yeah, those those are great questions. I mean, I think it's it's a really interesting time. So to back up a little bit, a year ago, I decided to uh, leave my job in San Francisco, move to Boston, and uh, pursue a graduate program in public health to really look at this issue of social isolation and loneliness through the lens of public health and understand all the systemic and kind of societal ways that we can influence people's social well-being. And uh, and then COVID hit. <laughs> and so while I was away studying, this all happened. Um, and suddenly, everyone was talking about social isolation and loneliness, because of course, we all had to socially isolate. And suddenly, every single news outlet online, on TV was talking about this issue. And people were trying to understand, you know, how do we stay socially connected while we're physically distant? And the amount of t attention that's come to this issue has been absolutely fascinating. It, it actually gives me a lot of hope because mm -hmm. people are really recognizing how essential their relationships are for their sanity and, and also mm -hmm. their, their enjoyment of life. And also, you know, based on the work I've done, I know it's, it's, they're also essential for our health. Um, so it's been really interesting to see the response to some of my work and some of the articles I've put out there, but also the work that's going on in so many different areas around these issues now. The summits and conferences and webinars and gatherings that are being hosted online to talk about this issue. Um, and so I'm, I'm optimistic because people, I think, are, are recognizing that social health is a dimension of well-being, just like physical health and mental health and spiritual health are. Um, and that it's something that we need to be really intentional about. And um, so it's an interesting time. I'm paying close attention to the data and trying to understand um, how this is affecting us all, because certainly some people are, are faring better than others. But um, I have a tremendous amount of hope just from the fact that people are really engaging in this conversation and recognizing it in their own lives. Um, and I'm, I'm excited for what's to come from that. Yeah, we would agree because we've made this point a lot in the last six months that how many of us spend so much time and money on our New Year's resolutions addressing <laughs> things like exercising and eating well, eating our greens, so to speak. But mm -hmm. how about our social health? And that's what we're hoping, I think, together. We're all trying to uh, to address this problem and, and help people just become more and more aware of it. Yeah. I think. I think actually we had text uh, message you yesterday in an email saying that we, we were in the process of reading Vivek Murthy's book mm -hmm. together, uh, who was the 19th Surgeon General of the United States, for those of you who are listening, and his book just came out in the last couple of months. is very timely, just about um, the, the need for, for these connections that we all ha have to have in our lives mm -hmm. to be emotionally and relationally connected and healthy. So one of the things that yeah. we want to ask is, what, what are some of the things that you think still need to be done? There are obviously a lot of things being done, but what are some things that, that uh, we can do because there's still such a long way to go? 
Yeah, absolutely. And first, I mean, with relation to Vivek Murthy's book, I mean, the fact that that was on the New York Times bestsellers list right away is really an indication of the fact that so many people are interested in this topic. And I think that's really fantastic. And um, first, I guess I'll answer by sharing a bit more about what has been done, because I'm actually seeing some really interesting innovation. I'm seeing kind of this emerging field of what I would call social wellness startups, where different organizations and teams are designing technology and experiences to meet these new connection needs that we all have, right? And so existing platforms are pivoting, you know, places like Nextdoor are launching all different new features to help people connect in more meaningful ways. But then there's also a lot of totally new platforms that are launching, ones like Icebreaker, which is kind of a, um, a substitute for Zoom that has different conversation prompts and can guide you through these really meaningful interactions. So I'm seeing a lot of innovation in, in sort of the startup tech space. I'm also seeing some really interesting um, policy work. So actually back in the fall, there was um, a bipartisan legislation that was proposed that would uh, support screening for loneliness in healthcare settings, that would support funding different state initiatives, that would encourage the, um, uh, I believe the Secretary for Aging to focus more on social isolation and loneliness. And some of those efforts that were proposed ended up being incorporated and improved into the Older Americans Act. And so it's really interesting to see kind of how at all levels there's, there's a lot going on. Um, but in terms of what needs to happen, because we do still have a long way to go. Um, you know, I, I think it's really about a cultural shift and a, a way of rethinking the role that relationships have in all of our lives. And I think there's a huge opportunity right now where we can leverage the momentum of the past few months um, and, and start to change norms, right? Start to strengthen our family units, our neighborhoods. I've been really inspired by how many people have gotten to know their neighbors for the first time ever, especially in cities. Um, but also more broadly, really reimagining the roles of workplaces, of schools, of, um, of all different kinds of communities so that we don't just think of these places that we interact with on a regular basis as where we go to work or kind of learn or, or do different tasks, but also as places where we're connecting with community, we're strengthening our individual social health, and we're really kind of reimagining how one another connects with each other. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of the work that I've done in the past year has been thinking about all the different societal factors and kind of sectors that influence what has been deemed a loneliness epidemic even before the pandemic. And there's so many there. And I think that we really need to think about intervening at all different levels, schools, workplaces, healthcare settings, or, you know, in our homes, in churches, in government, in, in all these different communities to um, really strengthen and, and improve the social fabric that ties us all together. Since you mentioned, you know, the, uh, the, the fact that the, the, you know, that you believe that it need, this needs to happen at a at a, at a much larger level, mm -hmm. at, that in a societal level, um, we have been intrigued uh, by the fact that in 2017, Brian, British Prime Minister at the time, Theresa May appointed a Minister of Loneliness mm -hmm. to her cabinet, <laughs> you know, officially. 
because yeah. of the understanding that so many Britons, especially older ones, were experiencing loneliness. And um, we we know that you've talked about this this appointment in you know in other podcasts, and we'd love for you to talk about that a little bit now too uh, for our yeah. listeners and about the need for that kind of official position and mm-hmm. what that might be able to do um, to to help us really take a, a, a good look at and, and tackle this mm-hmm. issue of loneliness on a, on yeah. a bigger level. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It was such an interesting decision that they made to do that. Um, and I think what's really important about that is that A, it's formally recognizing the importance of this issue. It's, it's saying, wow, social isolation and loneliness are affecting a lot of people in this country, in this community, and we need to do something about it. But also it's actually committing to allocating resources, right? And, and saying we're committing to taking action on this issue and, and supporting change. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, a while back I read the, the strategy, they had this very long PDF they released, um, and I was very impressed. It was very um, comprehensive, really interesting. I'll be interested moving forward to see kind of how they measure success and what the actual community impact will be. I mean, the UK is way ahead of us in terms of uh, offering a wide range of resources and and just having conversations about this issue. Um, But here in the US, you know, there have been calls to do something similar. People, I, I read a couple articles in the last few years about appointing a secretary for loneliness or something like that. And I have a bunch of thoughts on this. I mean, first, I think that if we are going to dedicate a government role, it shouldn't be for loneliness. It should be for community, right? Like, let's, let's, let's not call it the secretary for loneliness because we don't want more loneliness in the world. Mm-hmm. Let's call it the secretary for social well-being or for connection or for community and really focus on those assets rather than the deficits and shape the national conversation in that way. Um, I also think that, um, you know, some of the efforts thus far in the U.S. have been calling for the Secretary for Aging to focus on this issue and kind of include it in their scope. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I, I think we need to recognize that the data shows that it's actually not older adults who are the loneliest. It's younger generations. It's Gen Z. It's millennials who are feeling this uh, uh, to a greater extent. And so Really, we need to, you know, if if we're talking about the national level, we need to make sure that this is inclusive of all different ages, of all different backgrounds, um, because loneliness manifests in in, in many different ways uh, for different reasons. And and the final thought I'll share on this is is that I'm not sure if if federal is the right level to be doing this. Again, I, I do acknowledge that it kind of galvanizes support and awareness for the issue, and that's really important. But I think at the level of, of really creating meaningful, meaningful change in our communities, it might make more sense to have those roles at the state or, or even city and kind of local level, who, so that you have individuals who really know their communities and the unique needs and the unique ways that this is showing up for those, those community members and can tailor the kinds of initiatives that they launch or support um, to those individuals. So 
um, I'll be following along. It's going to be really interesting to see how it goes in the UK. But I think here I'd really encourage um, kind of framing the conversation in a more asset based way and also thinking locally as well as uh, as well as advancing the national conversation. Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Pensy. We are volunteers at Wonders Found Thrift Shop and proud sponsors of the Someone to Tell It To podcasts. Wonders Found is a totally volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We also support local missions and people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, mountcalvaryumc.org backslash wondersfound, or stop in to see what wonders you will find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard. God bless. One of the things that I think could be helpful for our listeners, it was helpful for us, I think in one of your conversations, you had differentiated between social isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could help help us uh, work our way through that today. Yeah, definitely. This is an important distinction, um, both in how we think about it as individuals, but also how it's studied in the academic literature. So social isolation is the objective experience of being alone, right? So a lot of us are socially isolated. I'm currently socially isolated in my bathroom, as you know. <laughs> um, but but uh, this is really about kind of the physical or, or literal fact that you're apart from other people. Loneliness, on the other hand, is really about the subjective experience of disconnection. So do you feel like you are fulfilled um, in, in terms of your relationships? Or do you, you do you feel kind of um, uh, separated? And so what's important here is that um, you can feel lonely while surrounded by people, or you can have lots of friends and family, but still not feel seen and understood or, or feel that sense of nourishing belonging that we all need. Um, and in contrast, you can be socially isolated and feel very connected and feel that sense of support and know that you have people you can reach out to who really care about you and understand you. So I, I think that's an important nuance. Um, there's also this idea of solitude, which is something that I as an introvert really enjoy. So the idea that you can enjoy alone time and, and really um, get energized from that. So yeah, these, these are all different kinds of facets of, of, this, of this conversation. I know in one of the interviews that we listened to, you had given some common reasons for why people are, are feel lonely. Mm -hmm. And we'll just go through those quickly. Uh, but we did want to uh, maybe even add to your list and then ask you a follow up mm -hmm. question. And, and for our listeners, uh, Casley had given five reasons in one of her interviews. People live alone. Numbers have increased. Technology, number two. Number three, less participation in social clubs and organizations. And we could talk about all of these extensively. Number four, less time to invest in their relationships. And number five, social anxiety, stress, and depression. But we, um, we actually wondered if 
there's a sixth component and this directly relates to our work at someone to tell to and we often have found people feel as if they're not being heard Mm -hmm. Uh, just and it it probably ties into some of these uh, but we wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and even any experiences you've had in your own life that kind of maybe even catalyzed you into moving into this loneliness space? Because I know for Michael and I, we could think of specific conversations or moments where we too felt lonely. And, and as a result, we're like, we need to do something about that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is that uh, there are many reasons why people feel lonely. I think that, that, that those six ones that I gave in another interview are just a few of them. And I completely agree that not feeling heard is a big cause of it, right? Because it's that idea that you can have a lot of friends or kind of a big social network, but not, but still feel lonely, right? You can still feel like you're not seen or, or understood. Um, and there are many other reasons. There's like one that I've been focusing on a lot recently is the design of our cities and the literal kind of physical environments that we interact with, whether or not there are places to gather um, that are communal and shared, whether or not there's public transportation that can get you from one place to, to see other people, whether or not there's neighborhood crime, things like that also play into this. So there are many, many reasons. Um, and yeah, I, I love that you mentioned this idea of feeling seen, feeling heard. I think it's absolutely vital. And, and here's where I think it's really important to recognize that it's about quality, not quantity of interaction. So you can have many superficial conversations with people. Um, and for some people that that's rewarding and, and that's great, but it's those conversations where you go a few levels deeper and really connect on a more meaningful level that really nourish our, our health and our well-being and our souls. And um, yeah, to, to answer your question, I mean, there were definitely, there's, there've been a lot of interactions like that along the way that have informed my path. Um, but some of the first were that uh, in my first job, I conducted mental health research. I was in a lab in Canada, and I, uh, I was responsible for conducting these neuropsychological interviews, which is a very fancy word. But basically, I would just <laughs> spend two hours at a time with these different individuals over um, various time intervals. So every few months we'd, we'd spend time together and I'd go through different tests and questions with them. But basically my role was to listen and to understand and, and collect information, but also just be there with them. And some of the conversations that I had with those individuals who I will, I will also say, you know, it was a mental health study. And so some of them had very serious um, mental illnesses that they were struggling with, bipolar disorder, depression, um, uh, schizophrenia, and other things, and, and were going through challenging times in their lives. And I, it's very hard to actually articulate how much those interactions influenced me and were really, really meaningful because just by listening and, and holding space and being present together, um, we, I, I just had some of the most incredible kind of magical interactions that to this day I, I still think about. <laughs> I still think about those people, even though that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then th- that inspired me to actually look into the research and discover that, you know, empathy in a healthcare setting or in a mental health setting 
can be healing in itself. So a, a physician, for example, who's an empathic listener, who's compassionate, who expresses um, kind of the human side of that interaction with their patient, it's associated with better health outcomes for the patients. And there's a whole host of literature on this. I actually wrote an article many, many years ago called Building Empathy in Healthcare, where I interviewed someone who studied this a lot. Um, and I just, it, it, that was so fascinating to me and it really resonated with the experiences that I had had in those interactions. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's a sweeping answer, but, um, yeah. <laughs> I think this, this idea of, of being seen and heard in any context, whether it's in our social lives, whether it's in a healthcare setting, whether it's, um, you know, in conversations like this, it, it's just so important. How, how have experiences, um, in which and when you haven't felt seen mm-hmm. or heard mm-hmm. affected you? And how much does that or how does that impact the way you and what, what you do now mm-hmm. <laughs> and the way you interact with people and, and see people and hear people and listen to them? Yeah, well, you know, this has been an interesting evolution for me. I think that early on in kind of my early 20s um, and in as a teenager, I very much took on the role of the listener and the supporter in my friendships. So all my friends would come to me with their problems and um, share them. And I was always there for them to really listen and, and help them however I could. And that was kind of my role. You know, it felt like an important part of my identity that I could be that, that source of strength for other people. Um, but I didn't necessarily reciprocate or I, sh- I should say receive. So it was much harder at that stage of my life to open up about the challenges that I was going through um, or to let myself be the recipient of that listening and that presence uh, in return. And I really could have used it through some of the things that I went through at that age, but I just didn't realize that it, you know, it was, it's scary to be vulnerable and to open up in those ways. But once I did, and once I actually started kind of reversing roles and, uh, sharing more and letting my friends and other relationships be that for me, it just totally transformed the way that I think about connection and my relationships took on a whole new level of depth. Um, and that has definitely informed my work. I mean, that journey of under- learning that, understanding that, and also exploring, you know, as an introvert, the right balance of socializing and solitude for me and, you know, kind of what meaningful human connection and nourishing social well-being looks like for me, that journey of exploring it in my personal life has absolutely informed the work that I do. And the fact that I care about the, this, these horrifying statistics about how many feel, how many people feel lonely in, in this country. I mean, I, I don't want anyone to feel that way. I want everyone to feel loved and seen and heard. Um, and uh, I, I think we can get there, but there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> so, so let's say some people today are listening and they're in that space of that, that lonely space where they feel mm-hmm. left out. Um, mm-hmm. What are some recommend, recommendations that you may have for relationships? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I've been focusing a lot more on kind of the, societal and and cultural level changes that we can make um, in some of my work. But I think at the individual level, 
it's really important, first of all, to have that self-insight and to recognize that maybe um, your social health isn't where you want it to be and to understand that delta of, of where you'd like it to be. You know, what are the communities that you want to be part of? Um, are there ways that you can get engaged, you know, through volunteering or through attending different events virtually, of course, during this time um, to, to really expand your social network? Or is it really that you have lots of people you can reach out to, but you want to take that a level deeper? And um, if so, you know, how might you do that? Is it through different conversation prompts that get you talking about things that you wouldn't have otherwise talked about? Is it through more empathic listening? Is it through shared experiences and um, connecting over challenges or, or adventures? Um, there are so many ways to approach that, but I think the first step is really understanding what, that, what, what you want that to look like in your life. Yeah, and I think the point you've, you've made all along here is just that we all have to just take ownership of the fact that at times we're all going to feel lonely. I mean, that's the definitely that's the first step is just this level of awareness and acceptance. Mm -hmm. um, as I, we mentioned earlier, I mean, just a level of vulnerability ourselves. I mean, I can think specifically of instances where I felt, you know, totally out on an island mm -hmm. by myself. And and that's essentially how this movement, this compassionate listening movement of which we're a part really started yeah. um, because Michael met me in that space and really someone to tell to developed out of our sense of, of connection mm -hmm. with each other and our friendship. And, uh, and yet we, we know of just so many people and we've heard so many stories over the last, I think we've had maybe 18,000 or 20,000 listening interactions, I think in the last eight or nine years and just wow. the number of people <laughs> who, who feel uh, out on an island by themselves mm -hmm. is it's it's scary but it also gives us uh, a sense of um, gratitude I think mm -hmm. for this, this space that we're able to enter with them yeah and absolutely we, I mean what that feels like yeah totally and and I do too I think that says a lot though about our culture something's wrong there that so many people feel like they're out on an island by themselves. I mean, we're, we're doing something wrong at the individual level, as well as all the kind of more um, top-down approaches that we can take, right? And maybe it's about changing some of the social norms, about the conversations that we have, you know? No more asking people what they do for a living and where they're from, like, let's get into the deeper stuff right away. Or, or maybe it's about um, rethinking the roles of our neighborhoods or of our apartment buildings or of our workplaces and creating opportunities within those for people to connect on a deeper level more easily. We, we um, like listening to national public radio mm -hmm. a lot. And uh, one of our uh, favorite uh, interviewers is Terry Gross. Are you familiar with her? She, uh, she a little bit. A yeah. Program uh, that's called fresh air, which, mm -hmm. um, in fact, it's literally on our local NPR station is airing right now as we, as we <laughs> so um, and she's, from, she's from Philadelphia, uh, broadcast from Philadelphia, which, you know, we live not too far from Philadelphia. And, and, you know, so there's a bit of a more local aspect to, to, to her too, but she's, she was interviewed once and, and she was asked, how, how do you get people to get to that deeper level? Mm -hmm. How do you get to, you know, how do you get people to open up? 
and, you know, get beyond the surface level. What do you do? How are you doing today? You know, those kinds of things. Beautiful day, isn't it? You know, you know, whatever. Um, and she said, you know, she says four words, four words that she has found somewhat magical. And they are that she that she will say to someone, tell me about yourself. Mm. We like that. I like that, too. Because it's very open. <laughs> it's very open ended. Um, yeah. You know, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. You know, <laughs> that, that it can end right there. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, there's, you know, some, for, for a lot of people that, you know, it's a standard response. And, and, mm -hmm. and we also realize that many people say it, they just say it. And we know that they really don't, aren't maybe not necessarily interested in how we're doing. Mm -hmm. But, but that question, tell me about yourself just opens, can open it up. Yeah. And, to, and, then, and then leads to other questions that, mm -hmm. that can go deeper. And be more intimate, emotionally, Absolutely. relationally, and we just like that. And yeah, try to remember. You know, it's the questions that we ask mm -hmm. uh, that that can really prompt deeper conversations and and deeper connections. Mm -hmm. Really make a difference that help us not to feel lonely. So lonely yeah, and alone. I love that. I really like that question. Um, it also makes me think that, you know, there are a lot of people who are really good at this, you know, who just have those questions on cue at all times and can take a room of people and really transform it quickly. And I've thought a lot about the fact that we, I really want to empower those people way more and really infuse kind of investment or support for all the community builders like that, who are in our neighborhoods, in our social networks, who are really skilled at that. And I think about, you know, how meaningful shifts in the prevalence of loneliness in this, in this society are going to come from people having conversations like that at the coffee shop and in in their book club you know i'm actually part of a, a women's book club and have been for a few years and we start up every session asking you know what's the rose bud and thorn of your last month so the rose is something really positive that happened the thorn is something more negative or kind of a challenge you're experiencing and the bud is something you're looking forward to. And oftentimes we spend more time on this rosebud thorn than we do discussing the actual book because that's where it opens up this whole array of things that are going on in each other's lives. And um, oftentimes it, it connects us more than the actual book content. So I think, you know, it's, it's, taking all of those little communities that we're each part of and infusing more of that into them that's going to help people feel seen more and, and when many many people are doing that on a small scale it adds up to an overall really big meaningful change i think one of the things that we've found in our work over the last nine years is how much we're drawn closer together through shared common experiences particularly around issues of suffering in some way mm, yeah. uh, we have a, a dear dear friend of ours and i think i may have referenced this in a previous podcast episode and so for our listeners i, I forgive me if i if i already mentioned this but it's good <laughs> to hear it again uh is a dear friend of ours who was actually our very very first podcast uh guest which is cool his name's tim madigan but he's a good friend of ours and we periodically talk on the phone just to catch up and almost inevitably every time we, we 
call him on the phone, his first question to us is, so how are you guys doing? And you know, we'll say, oh, we're, we're doing okay. We're doing fine. And he's like, I don't care about the good stuff. Tell me about the, the S-H-I-T. You know, tell me about <laughs> the, the, the true matters of the heart. And there's something serious about that that fosters our relationship and just takes it to a much deeper place because, yes, we all have sh- shared good experiences that need to be shared as well but we found in our work and just in our lives that it's sharing those moments of suffering where where those sore spots those sore points Mm -hmm. those 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 uh you know those sore spots that that really draw us most closely together and we we'd love to come full circle here in this interview bring you back to the dalai lama and for us (laughs) the christian faith I mean, how do we find meaning in suffering? I mean, that's a, it's a big question, but uh, what are some things that you've gleaned in your life just to how to find meaning, especially in the, the situation we all find ourselves in, in the midst of this pandemic right now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big question. <laughs> I definitely don't have all the answers, um, but I will say that um, probably five or six years ago, I was going through some things in my own life and being the nerd that I am, uh, turned to the research to kind of understand, you know, what can I learn from how other people have have gone through challenges. And I wrote this article called How to Find Meaning in Suffering, which again is a very ambitious title. And I think I only began to scratch the surface in it. Um, But what I I was looking into at the time is this idea of post-traumatic growth, which is kind of, so, I mean, a lot of us are familiar with the idea of post-traumatic stress, which is where, you know, you go through a crisis or, or some sort of really traumatic experience and you come out of that perhaps depressed or, or really kind of experiencing some challenges associated with that, which is a totally normal um, response. Um, but there's also been psychologists who've studied this phenomenon of post-traumatic growth, which is basically resilience and even flourishing in the face of of trauma or crises. So it's the idea that you can go through a challenging experience and yes, you may feel stress and depression and and many challenges associated with that, but you can also actually really grow from it in a way that kind of in psychology terms takes you to another level of psychological functioning. And so some of the ways um, that this is seen and there in it, I, I kind of identify five different areas where this manifests. The first is related to personal strength. So the idea that you can go through something really difficult and survive it. And that in itself, it feels like such a feat that you feel stronger. You're suddenly aware of what you, what you are able to go through. Um, so this idea of personal strength. The second is relationships. And I think that's really relevant right now during the pandemic in that terrible things can bring us together in new and meaningful ways. And actually there's a book called Tribe by Sebastian, I'm forgetting his last name, but it's one of my favorite books and I recommend it where he about how research on, on different historical events, different wars, um, different natural disasters, where the communities during those came together in such a profound way and became so close that after the traumatic experiences were over, there was this, there was almost a sense of kind of loss. Like they had had that really tight knit camaraderie and, and sense of um, 
belonging and, and purpose. And then once the disaster was over, that kind of went away and they sort of went back to their normal lives and there was almost a sense of loss there. On the flip side, you can really come together and, and have those relationships endure. And so I love that idea of, of coming out of a challenge closer together than you were before. The third area was around greater life appreciation. So, you know, right now we really appreciate going to the idea of going to restaurants or hanging out with friends or having parties or celebrating weddings and birthdays in person, right? And that kind of appreciation for those moments has come out of the fact that we've been unable to do those things during that or during the pandemic. Um, and then there are two other areas. One is around beliefs. So how your sense of faith or spirituality or religion may strengthen or actually conversely um, lessen as a result of going through challenging times. And then the last thing was around new possibilities. So right now, this is a great example where we're going through this pandemic. It's awful, but also we can kind of reimagine the society that we want to build and, and emerge into once this is over. And so it's opening up the, the range of possibilities that um, we would have had otherwise. So that is to say, you know, how do we find meaning in suffering? Uh, this is a very individual process and, and challenging, but I think there are these different themes where we can come out of challenging times um, better off in, in surprising ways. And my hope is that we will do so coming out of this pandemic, especially as it relates to relationships and how much we appreciate and prioritize them. One of the things we've um, talked about in a variety of different ways is through this this pandemic, the economic shutdown, the the isolation that so many people are feeling, um, is how do we use this time? How do we use it? You talk about the new possibilities, the the fifth mm -hmm. uh, of these of these uh, points you're making, and how do we take this 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 struggle and this hardship and mm -hmm and and grow from it how mm -hmm. do we help to create something better mm -hmm. than before and and let this time inform us as to how yeah. things could be maybe a little easier mm -hmm. <laughs> a little kinder a little bit um you know we hopefully a lot kinder a lot easier a lot mm -hmm. you know whatever, whatever good things we're, we're looking for and and that's um you know that's something that's important to us you know, and how do we do this through, you know, just per personally, certainly, but also through someone to tell it to and the work that we're doing, how, how yeah. we allow this time to inform us as to how things need to change. Yeah. And how can we serve people better? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, have you thought about that too for yourself? <laughs> uh, what, what, mm -hmm. what, what might you do uh, as a, as a result of this time? Yeah. Yeah, it's such a great question. And I hope that everyone is reflecting on that question as it relates to their own lives as well as culture more broadly. I mean, I think the pandemic has brought clarity around the fact that we all depend on one another and we are all interconnected in ways we can't even begin to understand. And it's brought it to light in a very literal sense in that, you know, if other people don't social distance and don't wear masks, that can spread infection and, and disease and death. Um, but also at, at an emotional level, you know, we, we really depend on one another to fulfill um, all of our connection needs and a sense of meaning and purpose in life. So I think 
in terms of using this time to kind of reimagine, um, my hope is that we'll do that in a number of ways. One is that uh, as individuals and as a society, we will shift and reprioritize the, the, the togetherness that we're all seeking right now. Another is, is around technology and social media. I really hope that um, we're learning through this experience that, you know, addiction and dependence on our devices is not healthy and not fulfilling. And of course, we need them right now in order to connect with one another. But let's do so in ways that are actually nourishing. Scrolling through social media, you know, through your feeds, kind of mindlessly looking at Twitter and, and things like that aren't fulfilling in the deep ways that we need. And so my hope is that we'll kind of start building habits around this where we use technology in the way that it was originally intended, which was just as a tool, right, to help us get do things easier, uh, more easily. And when it comes to connection, I, I mean, I, I hope that we're developing habits around using technology to stay in touch, to get in touch, to schedule hangouts, things like that, but not using it as a crutch or as a substitute for conversation and, and more meaningful connection. Um, so those are, those are some of the ways I think in my own life, you know, as difficult as it is to see this affecting the world in so many ways, um, it's also inspiring a lot of the work I do. You know, I, I've been thinking about this topic for a while now, um, even before this happened, and now it's just reinforced how essential it is. So it's strange to be balancing, you know, mourning for the loss of life and the loss to many people's, you know, employment and, and all, of, all of the things that we're seeing happen, while at the same time feeling really energized and feeling like there's ways that I can contribute because my area of expertise just happens to align with, with what's happening. And so, yeah, I, I hope that everyone is reflecting on that question because I think there are all ways um, that we can individually and collectively improve things going forward. Yeah, well, this has been so meaningful to us. Thank you for taking like an hour out of your time uh, we, uh, <laughs> to sit in your bathroom and, and have a real conversation <laughs> with us. It's fantastic. Uh, this is a first for me. I've, this I've is a never, first for uh, everybody, but it's yeah. first, first for us too. <laughs> I'm just glad you didn't turn your video on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, one of the things that we've been doing in this series that we find ourselves in is just being real with people uh, that we have mm -hmm. on the program. And we love to end by just asking a few kind of rapid fire questions. And just the first thing that pops into your head, uh, we'd love for you to be able to respond and, and uh, you don't have to think too, too hard about it. It could be both uh, <laughs> serious and humorous. Sure. But I know one, one of the questions I, I wanted to ask you, it actually it pertains to something you had mentioned earlier about this, this book club that you're in. And you often ask what are the, the, the roses and, and the thorns are, are mm -hmm. a variation of that. But mm -hmm. I'd like to phrase it in this way, where what's put a smile on your face the last six months mm -hmm. since the pandemic started and has kept a smile on your face? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, a lot of things. The <laughs> first thing that popped into my head is that I just recently got engaged. <laughs> and okay. so congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So that has definitely put a smile on my face. And actually, you know, on this theme of 
of connection and relationships. It's been a beautiful experience to share our engagement with friends and family and, and colleagues um, and to kind of keep reliving it through telling the story and, and just share that love and feel the strong community that we have around us. So I think that's kind of a gift that keeps on giving in terms of just reminding us that uh, we are very fortunate to have people who love us and who support us in, in our relationship. So yeah, I'll, I'll answer with that. <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, Tom, you actually, you actually took my question. I was gonna ask the same thing. <laughs> but when she mentioned that the rose and thorn in the bud, I thought, ah, we got. <laughs> so so is, there, is, there, is there a thorn? you would like to share? Hmm. Oh, it's, oh, there are definitely thorns. Let me think of <laughs> which one. one to share. <laughs> How big a thorn are we talking here? <laughs> yeah. I won't, won't get too thorny. Um, yeah, you know, it, uh, certainly having people I know catch the coronavirus, um, actually my family physician of the last uh, most of my life, um, he unfortunately fell sick with COVID and was in the hospital. He's actually still in the hospital. And I think it's been uh, three and a half months at this point. And for the first two of those, he was um, in the intensive care unit. And so just seeing it affect people who you know, uh, and the struggles that they're dealing with going through that, that's been really hard. I've been fortunate to not catch it myself, knock on wood. Um, but seeing other people who I know and love and just hearing the statistics on it and, and having faces kind of match those statistics is, is really hard. I, I, it's just an awful thing for people to go through. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And we're Thank very you. sorry. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's uh, end on a lighter note then. Um, you're an introvert speaking to a couple of introverts <laughs> as an introvert. What, what's something that, um, that, that fill, fills your cup? Mm, that's a great question. Well, definitely alone time. Um, I'm big on uh, making sure that I'm kind of uh, getting my quote quotient of, of solitude in a given day or week. Um, but also more, you know, having fewer interactions, but making the interactions I have really count. Um, and I'm, I'm lucky to have lived in a number of different places and, and have friends in different cities and countries. And, you know, having kind of regular check-ins with them where we really go deep. Um, I love that. Um, and, and that to me is kind of how I think about social health. Am I making sure to check in with, with the people I really care about and doing so not necessarily very often but uh very meaningfully we need that too yeah yeah <laughs> we very much resonate with that yeah thank you well thanks so much for for again taking some time out of your schedule we know you like all of us is is just doing the best we can right now um <laughs> and so we really appreciate uh, just your, your voice and your perspectives and, and also your research. I mean, it's, it, you're somebody that I think in the future going forward for someone to tell to, we're going to be citing often because you're, you're <laughs> supporting this effort that we have of, of making sure people do feel valued and heard and, and supported and cared for. So, so absolutely. Thank well, thank you for, for doing the hard work of putting that research into action and actually 
bringing communities together. And um, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for, for having me on the podcast. It's been a pure delight and we uh, are so grateful and that, that uh, we've been able to, to talk with you, to listen to you and to um, share together in, in what we know is a, are some very common goals and, and beliefs and, and dreams uh, for what this world, Absolutely. what our lives can be. So we thank you. <laughs> thank so you. Much. We wish you well and congratulations again on your interview. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in to today's conversation and thanks for always being so supportive of Someone to Tell To's work and for partnering with us to address this epidemic of loneliness and disconnection that we talk about so often. In this episode, we mentioned some books that have helped us in our own personal and professional journeys. We mentioned, as I think we've mentioned in other episodes, The Book of Joy about the friendship between the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu and their love for each other and their love for humanity. Several of our team members connected so deeply with the inspiration in this book. Uh, I think we've read it twice and discussed it at length together. And then we also mentioned another book that we are in the middle of reading right now by the former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy someone we've quoted often in our compassionate listening training for businesses, especially healthcare, as he, based on his extensive research and personal experience, discusses at length the healing power of human connection in a sometimes lonely world. As we say in nearly every episode, we hope this conversation helps you feel less alone. If you feel alone, we are here to listen. You can email us through our website, someone2tellitto.org. Vivek Murthy says in his book, Medicine and technology may fail us at times, but human connection, grounded in love and compassion, always heals. Perhaps the sense of loneliness and disconnection that comes can't entirely be prevented, but it can be eased. Helping individuals and their families feel known Helping them feel seen and loved is perhaps the most powerful medicine we have. With that thought in mind, we will see you back here in two weeks. So, until we listen again.